It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to episode 103 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. As always, we are glad you've joined us. Does the American left have a religion problem? What can the Democratic Party and others on the political left, and I'm talking here from Biden to Bernie, learn from people like Sherwood Eddy, Ignacio Salone, Dorothy Day, Henry Wallace, Stoughton Lind, Martin Luther King Jr., Pope Francis, Reverend William Barber, or Cornell West. If you've never heard of some of these names, maybe you should, because they offered a powerful spiritual vision for a moral and just society, a vision that challenged conservatives, liberals, and Marxists alike. Today's episode, we talk to historian and writer Vanessa Cook about her 2019 book, Spiritual Socialists, Religion and the American Left. Stay tuned. Vanessa will be with us in a moment. But first, let's take care of some business. Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net to check out Hello Network podcast. This free podcast is brought to you through the patrons of Current, an online platform of commentary and opinion that provides daily reflection on contemporary culture, politics, and ideas. We keep this going by your generous financial donations. If you like what you read or hear at Current and want to support our work, and that, by the way, includes this bi-monthly podcast that you're now listening to, our daily opinion features, the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, and our narrative podcast on the history of evangelicals and politics, then head over to currentpub.com and click the red support button or go directly to our Patreon page at patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash current. As always, the best way to spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend. 
You can follow us on Twitter at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at John Fia one, or you can follow current on Twitter at current underscore pub one. We are also on Facebook and Instagram. If you like an episode, give us a share or a retweet, and please consider a positive review on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Vanessa Cook received her PhD in American history from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She is the proprietor of ScholarScope, where she works with academic writers to improve their writing and shape the indexes of their books. She writes both nonfiction and fiction and is currently at work on two novels and a nonfiction book about folk music and the politics of the 1960s. Cook appeared at Religion in American Culture, the Journal of American History, Dissent, the Los Angeles Review of Books, Aeon, Sojourners, and the Washington Post. Vanessa teaches history in Wisconsin and lectures widely at historical sites, libraries, and universities throughout the country. Our interview today is based on her 2019 book, Spiritual Socialists, Religion and the American Left, published with the University of Pennsylvania Press. Our guests today is Vanessa Cook. She is the author of Spiritual Socialists, Religion and the American Left. Vanessa, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me on. So tell me a little bit about you know, how this project began. How did you get into this subject? Well, I went to graduate school for history at UW-Madison here in Wisconsin, and I had always, well, since my teenage years, been interested in the protest movements of the 1960s and the culture and the music of that time period, and curious about what made so many people go out into the streets to protest and what kind of beliefs and value systems was behind that. And so in grad school, when I needed to pick a project, you know, I had already been reading about the new left movement of the 1960s, um, civil rights movements that, you know, it's interrelated um into the from the 1950s into the 60s and especially in the civil rights organizations i was picking up on a lot of spiritual and religious language um such as SNCC, student nonviolent coordinating committee was very open about that in the beginning of their organization and even in some other organizations like students for democratic society i was just uh hearing them talk in spiritual language sometimes that I didn't know how intentional it was or how 
uh, prevalent it was among members of those groups. And so I started looking into those organizations initially, found some representatives like Stoughton Lind, who I thought really had a spiritual or religious motivation for doing what he did. And then, you know, I needed to find a longer history to this. So I started to go back and try to find examples of uh, this tradition that I kind of started to see emerge, um, particularly after World War One. And so that's where the characters or subjects of my book came from. So let's dive right in here. What is spiritual socialism? How are you defining this, this phrase? It could also be termed Christian socialism. The reason I didn't use that term, all the people in the book happened to be Christian, but they were very ecumenical about it in meaning that they thought that there was some value to most major religions, Judaism, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, um, that people had shared values of love and taking care of one another and being good to one another that Christians could agree with. And so I didn't want to imply that they were just strictly Christian and didn't want to work with or participate in any other uh, religious movement or, you know, couldn't find common cause with other uh, religious people of other religions, which they did do, especially Judaism and these protest movements. And they admired, for example, Gandhi and his uh, Indian protest movement. So I came up with the term, uh, me and my advisor, in fact, came up with the term spiritual socialist to just make it a little bit more ecumenical. But it's basically a, a way that these the people in the book that I write about, they conceived of socialism that was from the grassroots up, so from the bottom up. And it was really about community building and taking care of each other in communities. And they saw a dovetailing of their Christian values with this form of socialism that was not really Marxist. Yeah. Um, it was a different variety of socialism that they started to uh, support and promote. Let's pick up a little bit again on that Marxist point, because, you know, I think there might be some listeners of this podcast who hear socialism and they think Marx or, you know, I'm sure there's some people out there listening who may even pick up this newfangled term I hear all the time, cultural Marxism. Or How is your spiritual socialists different than Marx or how did they how did they engage Marx? Okay. Very important question. And pretty much the it pivots away from Marx on one important point. So I know that to this very day, Marx is uh Marxism is so synonymous with socialism that people don't realize that there are other types of socialism that um don't follow his theory or don't subscribe to his theory. There were socialist theories that predated Marxism and his right Marx and his writings. Basically, uh, Marx, uh, his biggest, I don't know if you would call it a mistake, but the biggest issue that went awry with his theory is that, you know, even though he meant well and he wanted to reach a perfected society where everyone treated each other well and there was peace on earth, he believed that uh, there was for a time that it was a necessity that the state, the federal government or centralized government intervene to take control of things and kind of enforce fairness among people, meaning that they would redistribute wealth, um, they would force the rich to contribute to taking care of the poor and the disadvantaged, that the government would also intervene to provide welfare. And so he put a lot of stake and responsibility in this strong central government to control things. 
Unfortunately, what leaders like Stalin in the Soviet Union and Mao in China, for example, did is they co-opted that as an excuse to to consolidate their own power and to maintain their own power and their political party. And so it really just became them using Marxist theory and that strong state as an excuse for their own power. And it was corrupted and discredited very thoroughly to this day. You know, Marxism is largely discredited by so many people because of the practice of, um, you know, dictators like Stalin and Mao. These spiritual socialists in this book, they could engage with Marxism and appreciate him to a certain extent, but they did not agree with that emphasis on the strong central government that, you know, was so key to his writing. Yeah, and I think we'll see this as we move on here and, and talk about some of the individual figures uh, in the book. I think this will be illustrated. Now, there was one more kind of question, definitional question. You know, a lot of people who know religion, American religious history might think about another kind of, for lack of a better term, progressive kind of Christianity at the turn of the 20th century, the social gospel, right? And there seems like there's a lot of similarities between the two, but what are the differences? I mean, is this the social gospel or is this something slightly different? Is it a, there a big difference? Very, very similar. And if you actually read Walter Rauschenbusch, um, he was a huge influence on my decision to write this book because he was writing in the early 20th century using a lot of the same language that the spiritual socialists that I profile in this book are using. And they appreciated Walter Rauschenbusch and his social gospel and the other social gospelers around in the early 20th century. I think the difference um, was that after World War I, there was a lot of disillusionment, even among social gospelers. They had this, they had, they were just on fire for uh, prog making progress and this rosy optimism about we're going to solve the world's problems in our generation and we're going to implement the kingdom of God on earth in a couple generations. So they had this, this rosy optimism that came to um, a screeching halt with the horrors of World War I when many people realized that, hey, we're not treating each other any better. Look at what happened in this war. And we thought we were making progress. It turned a lot of people off and it turned a lot of people away from the notion that you could make progress toward a kingdom of God on earth. Um, but the people who persisted are the kind of people that I pick up with in the 1920s who are saying, no, we just have to try harder. Maybe it'll take longer. Maybe the methods were wrong. Maybe we can't just implement it from top and through policy. Maybe we have to start changing behaviors at the grassroots level. Are the spiritual socialists sort of post-1920, okay, so, so World War I kind of crushes this notion that it's all progress. And then you have sort of neo-Orthodox people like the theological world, like Karl Barth or Reinhold Niebuhr in the world of sort of social criticism and to some extent theology. How are they interacting with these kinds of, like, I don't see Niebuhr, obviously, as somebody who would reject the kind of end goal of spiritual socialists, but certainly has a much deeper sense of sort of the tragedy of human life, right? I mean, I know I didn't prep you for this question, but how does Niebuhr fit into this? That's okay. Uh, Niebuhr, I've mentioned him uh, throughout the book here and there because he's such a major inter interlocutor yeah. with some of the figures in the book. The biggest, I guess, difference, um, some of the people in the book were very, um, admired Niebuhr greatly, like Sherwood Eddy, for example, was good friends with Niebuhr and admired him. 
Uh, others took issue mostly with Niebuhr. Um, his, uh, he wasn't an absolute pacifist. You know, he did have Christian war theory and just war theory and uh, wrote about when war is necessary. And um, people like A.J. Musty or Dorothy Day, who were absolute social socialists, took a big issue with that part of his theology and his writing. They thought that he was uh, fueling the flames of Cold War uh, politicians who needed sort of a Christian justification for what they were doing. And they thought that he wasn't matching the means with the ends. In other words, they were thinking, well, if you want a peaceful society where there isn't violence and there isn't war and people treat each other well, then you can't advocate for war. You have to advocate for you have to you have to practice what you want as the end goal or it's never going to become. Niebuhr, it seems like they had a real struggle too, right? I think this is another way to put what you just said, right? With Niebuhr's kind of realism, which often resulted in his non-pacifism. Yeah, that's 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 so interesting. So one other phrase here that, and you've already mentioned it, I think, in one of the answers, and you see this in the social gospel a lot too, right? Prior to World War One, uh, is this phrase, the kingdom of God, right? You know, what what did spiritual socialists mean when they talked about the kingdom of God? Because you hear this phrase even today all over the place. It's used in so many different ways. Today, it's normally used by, you know, these kind of, you know, people like Betsy DeVos or, you know, these right wing, right? We're going to bring the kingdom of God to America by electing this or that person or whatever. But what did, what did the spiritual socialists mean by the kingdom of God? Uh, Kingdom of God for social gospelers and spiritual socialists was this uh, gradual progress towards what they imagined to be God's will for humanity or God's will for earth in terms of look at all the values that Jesus preached about and practiced and exemplified, treating each other well, taking care of each other, um, doing unto the least of these as, you know, not valuing money over people, uh, equality, seeing everyone as an equal child of God, um, peace, those, those sort of values. They saw the kingdom of God as the culmination of that. And if some of your listeners are familiar with different dispensationalist sort of or eschatological uh, theories, they would be post-millennial, millennial, post-millennialist, um, meaning that they believe that God's will and his kingdom comes gradually through humanity and through the actions of humans on earth, that it won't be this cataclysmic event that happens instantaneously, like in premillennialist theory, but it's a gradual working towards God's will. And that belief that God put it on humanity's, in humanity's hands um, to try to do his will on earth. So did they believe that the kingdom in this post-millennial kind of idea, right? I've never been clear about the social gospel on this, but did they believe this was possible? Could this be accomplished sort of on this earth? Oftentimes you see sort of a middle position between the kind of premillennialists and the post-millennialists who say like, it's now, but not yet, you know, or how did they view the kind of timing on this? Did they believe that this kind of utopian kingdom of God was the end goal, or did they have this again, more kind of realistic dimension where they said, you know, we'll just keep working, even though we'll never, yep. we'll never achieve it on this side of what eternity yeah. or whatever. 
So it varied from person to person. And I, yeah. I do address this in the book here and there. Sherwood Eddy, for example, of the YMCA, he took this more realist position sometimes. You know, he was the he was the fan of Niebuhr. So he had that tendency. Yeah. Um, but he said, you know, maybe it won't happen. It, it certainly won't happen in my lifetime. Maybe it won't be for thousands of years. But if we don't believe it, it's it, it was an act of faith to continue to do this work, even if you weren't certain that it would happen, you know, why they were thinking, why give up on the idea, you know, you can't make it happen or work towards it if you don't believe that it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the some of the figures, some of the historical actors in your book. I don't want to assume anything because there may be some of our listeners who have never heard of Dorothy Day. Uh, but she obviously figures prominently. You've already mentioned her a few times. How do you connect her to this spiritual socialism that you write about? Dorothy Day, major figure of this book, and her writings are probably her diaries and memoirs are pretty accessible for anyone who wants more information on her. She wrote a few memoirs, and then her diary and her letters are also collected into bound volumes. Anyway, she began a Catholic worker, the Catholic worker hospitality houses or settlement houses, the first one being in New York City in the 1930s, and also the Catholic worker newspaper that was its um, its uh, mouthpiece, its, its weekly newspaper. But earlier in her life, when she was in her teenage years and early 20s, um, she was a fellow traveler of a lot of communists in, in around New York City, and she wrote for communist publications. She was a journalist for them and uh, married or was at least common law married to um, a very atheist, secular communist and that with her circle of friends. Uh, she did have some spiritual inklings in, you know, throughout her life, but it wasn't until after the birth of her daughter that she really had this compulsion all of a sudden to have her daughter uh, raised with a religious upbringing and have those values instilled in her. And she really didn't know how to explain it. It just kind of you know came upon her after the birth of her daughter. So she picked Catholicism. She had had some uh, experience with Catholicism and some Catholic friends before. And, you know, in the process of getting her daughter baptized and going to mass, she became very devout Catholic uh, herself, Dorothy Day, and felt like she lost a lot of her old friends who didn't understand why she was all of a sudden embracing this institutional religion that they had rejected for so long and didn't think was compatible with their radicalism. And she went her own way and uh, but still felt this yearning for some kind of activism, the activism that she had had earlier with these radical groups and wanted to find a way to reconcile them. And she searched for many years and it was this very uh, strong spiritual impulse with her to find a, a way to, to bring the two together. And it was after some uh, someone showed up at her apartment with similar ideas and a similar ideal to combine Christian values with radicalism, uh, radical change. Uh, that was Peter Morin. He showed up at her apartment and <laughs> they became lifelong comrades, if you will, friends, uh, collaborators in the Catholic Worker Project. And it was during the early years of the Great Depression that they saw all this tremendous need, you know, people in poverty, unemployed, alcoholism, mental illness, especially in lower Manhattan at that time. And that's where they decided to just act on their beliefs and 
open up a basically a soup kitchen and a uh, welfare office where people could spend the night if they needed a few nights um, shelter. So that was the beginning of Catholic Worker, which spread around the country and around the world. And she, she and Peter Moore, as I mentioned, were very strict pacifists. So they would um, they would speak out against any kind of war measures throughout, uh, you know, World War II and then um, the Vietnam War as well. So she was uh, a big influence on a lot of other um, new leftists uh, who knew about her work and valued and valued her um, contribution to radical thought. And when they started Catholic Worker, she actually writes about this in her memoir. She knew that the Daily Worker, which was the communist newspaper that was being distributed weekly in New York City and elsewhere, that that had a strong following. And she very consciously wanted Catholic Worker to be a spiritual or religious alternative to Daily Worker. She wanted people to see that they didn't have to choose between Christianity or their religion and radicalism, that there was a way to go forward with both of them. Now, normally, when we think about people like Dorothy Day, we think about people outside of the kind of governmental space, right? They're speaking prophetically to power. But Henry Wallace is interesting because he actually becomes the vice president of the United States. Uh, I think he's what the second VP under FDR. Uh, he's the president during FDR's third term. You spend a lot of time on him as a spiritual socialist. So, you know, how does a spiritual socialist get so close to power in the FDR administration? Tell us a little bit about Henry Wallace, who I knew absolutely nothing about until I read your book. Yeah, and I, honestly, John, you're not the only person who scratched their heads when they yeah. saw that I had included Henry Wallace. Uh, you know, a lot of my early advisors, professors, and and readers of the of the drafts of the book said, "Really, Henry Wallace? I'm not so sure he fits." But I think I made a convincing argument in that chapter, and uh, just to um, to uh, toot my own horn a little bit, I guess. Years afterwards, I got an email randomly from, or you know, randomly one day, from Henry Wallace's. It was either his grandson or his great nephew or something like that. And he said, "I read your book, and I don't think anybody understood my uh, my uncle's belief system or put it better than you did in the book." So I was very validated awesome. that yeah. <laughs> that uh, his relative thought that I had nailed it, but. Yeah, good. Um, I had to make a strong case for him to be in the book because of his position of power. And it seems counterintuitive if I'm talking about all these grassroots, community building, localized things, and he's at the top echelons of the government. He was, uh, when the Great Depression hit and FDR uh, became president, he was initially a cabinet member, Department of Agriculture, the Secretary of Agriculture, because of his family's history with corn production in Iowa. And so he was very involved in the New Deal policy because of its effect on agriculture and help to farmers throughout the country. However, if you read uh, Wallace's writings, his essays, his speeches, his, his books, first of all, it's infused with religious language through and through. And he didn't just use it rhetorically like some politicians do. He was a true believer in what he was saying. He thought of the New Deal as necessary and he promoted it and supported it. 
But he wrote about how the New Deal had to be temporary because he did not want the government, the central government, to continue to wield that kind of um, power. Uh, he thought that the New Deal, the spirit of the New Deal was what he was mostly concerned about. And the spirit of the New Deal was taking care of each other in your community, you know, helping people out when they're having hard times, getting them through a rough patch. And so even though it was a federal program that was legislated at the top and then implemented uh, at the local level, he really wanted the spirit of the New Deal to be about helping people in the community, just like, say, Dorothy Day believed and these other spiritual socialists believed. I can't remember if he covered this in the book or not. Where did he go after he became vice president? Did he continue in this kind of uh, mission type uh, spiritual socialist kind of? He did. Yeah. yeah. Did. So he becomes very disgruntled with Harry Truman. Harry Truman, yeah. of course, was picked at the last minute to be his to be FDR's vice president of the last term, which meant that even though Henry Wallace had been around in these close circles with FDR during the war for so many years, he loses that opportunity to become president because FDR decided to switch to Harry Truman. And when Truman is president, you can tell there's tension between Truman and Wallace. And Wallace uh, keeps on criticizing Truman and his handling of the Cold War that's emerging. And Truman pretty much asks for his resignation. And for, uh, from he was head of commerce at that point. Mm. And uh, Wallace runs against Truman as a third party candidate in, in 1948 um, and is surround. He's really surrounded by a lot of uh, by a lot of communists, which really hurt his campaign. Yeah. He obviously didn't believe in their way of thinking about socialism, but he uh, wasn't going to reject their help. He thought he could influence them to a more spiritualized version of it. Um, that was maybe naive. And so a lot of Democrats, even if they were more progressive than Harry Truman, they were just scared off by the people who were surrounding his campaign. Was that the Socialist Party that he ran? Democrat, Progressive Party. Democrat. Progressive Party. Yeah. yeah. I was reading this uh, biography of this guy, Izzy Stone, who was this uh, sort of socialist slash communist. You know, they all became less communist as the 40s went on. <laughs> but, you know, who, who, I think was a big Wallace supporter. Izzy Stone was like the first blogger or so he had his first sub stack. He would send these little newsletters out, you know, and for five bucks, you could get his newsletter. And he, he's a fascinating figure, but he was a big Wallace guy. And now all this is starting to come back to me. There's a figure that you don't highlight really, but he, he pops in every now and then in the book. And I first learned about your work. We were talking before we, we started recording um, by finding a piece you wrote in dissent uh, on the Italian socialist Ignazio Salone, who I'm a big fan of his fiction uh, and his writings. Um, oh, he doesn't play a major role in your book. And you were telling me earlier because he really wasn't an American figure, but but he's kind of hovering over all of this. And, you know, Saloni was kind of a hardcore socialist who I think kind of really softened when he saw what Stalin was doing in the Soviet Union and became much more kind of connected with his Catholic faith. But, you know, that's an Italian story or a Swiss, Swiss story, depending where Saloni is at the time. How does he fit into this kind of American story you're telling about spiritual socialism? And again, this might not be a question most people would ask you. You just happen to have a person who's like a big Salone fan, right? 
No, I'm a big Salone fan too. Um, he's in there because he had such a profound uh, influence on many of the American radicals who, like I said, they're disillusioned with Marxism because they see how Stalin is corrupting it. They lose faith in the Soviet Union and the Communist Party. They don't want anything to do with the Communist Party anymore. And they become, I mean, some of them incredibly depressed, like Irving Howe or Dwight MacDonald, depressed that they had devoted so many years of their life to this to this cause and to this mission that ended up being corrupt and unethical in the end. And so they're looking around for a way to uh, salvage something from their values and their belief system that can, uh, so they can continue their activism without being part of, you know, communist, atheistic, secular, um, corrupt politics. And in the mid-1930s, a book, a novel, Bread and Wine by Ignazio Salone, an Italian author, uh, is published and it makes its way into translation into the English language uh, publication in the U.S. And it has a huge impact because it, if you haven't read the book, it's um, about a, it's it's kind of semi-autobiographical biographical on Salone's part because he had been, like you said, John, a very hardcore part of the Communist Party in Italy. And he becomes disillusioned with Stalin and the whole communist system. And he gets back to his Catholic roots. And in the character in the book is a uh, disillusioned radical who goes back to this small village and he's he's dressed as a priest because he's in hiding. He's not Spina. Yeah, he's he's not really a priest. He's just pretending, but people start to come up to him as a priest and mistake him as a priest. And he realizes that if you really boil it down to its essential qualities and essential values, that socialism is really about being good to people, acts of mercy, the kind of things that, you know, Jesus talked about in the Beatitudes or in Matthew 25, and that there could be a compatibility between your Christian beliefs or in Irving Howe's case, his, uh, his Jewish upbringing. Um, and so this book had such a big influence on people like Dorothy Day, Irving Howe, Dwight McDonald, Stoughton Lynn, who were reading it in the thirties and forties and struggling with these same questions. How do we have, how do we maintain the spiritual impetus for this, this activism that they wanted to change the world for the better but without the baggage of the Communist Party. Yeah, it's such a beautiful book, Bread and Wine. It just—it's one of—it's it, one of those novels that, for me, it was life-changing when I read it. I read it with a little bit of nostalgia because I'm Italian, I'm part Italian, so it was—you know—there was a little bit of that mixed in. I'll admit it, right? But but it's it's such a it's such a great uh, it's such a and and uh, and and my family part of my family came from the Abruzzi region. Oh yeah, uh-huh. it was from so it, there was all this, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't, I'm not trying to parse it out. It's just, you know, it was, it was, I really connected with that book. Um, so yeah, Salone's read, read bread and wine. If you're listening, uh, you know, whatever your political views are, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful novel. Um, there's so many characters here in your book. I wish we had time to talk about people like Paulie Murray and uh, Sherwood Eddy and some of these other figures you've mentioned them in passing, but you have mentioned Stoughton Lind. I recently gave a talk 
about the uh, 1968 AHA, American Historical Association Conference. And I read a biography of Staunton Lynn by Carl Mira. You've probably read the same book. But yeah. but that was a conference in which Lind and some of the radicals, like uh, the activists, like, like Howard Zinn and some of these other people tried to get control of the AHA or at least try to get them to pass an anti-Vietnam resolution. It failed largely because of another socialist, Eugene Genovese, who, mm-hmm. who didn't, who didn't like it. And that's a whole other story, but I, I gave a talk on that recently. So Staunton Lynn has been fresh in my mind. Who was Staunton Lind? Most of my listeners probably don't know him. And I did not, I guess until recently, I did not know he was operating out of any kind of spiritual context, right? But, but you know, your book kind of reminded me that this, you know, he was a Quaker. He was drawn to Quakerism. So tell me a little bit about, tell us a little bit about Staunton Lind. So Staunton Lind was actually the first person I knew I was going to put into this book. Uh, when I was starting this project, you know, you have to start with a thesis, which is a smaller version, maybe a chapter, it becomes a chapter in your dissertation, and then the book. So the thesis, the master's thesis was on Staunton Lind. It was my, uh, it was a much longer, much longer than I have here in the chapters of this book, much longer uh, biography of him and how he combined his spiritual outlook with his activism. Staunton Lind grew up very privileged in New York City to academics and, um, but from a very and they were and they were both rad, radicals who hung around with communists and socialists. So he was introduced to that at an early age. Um, but then you know he got involved in the civil rights movement when he became a history professor. He wanted to go down south and participate in the in the Southern Civil Rights Movement. Worked for the Freedom Schools um, during the 1950s and early 19 well the early 1960s would be Freedom Schools. And, you know, became a uh, central figure in SNCC and then SDS as well. And like you said, he was uh, drawn to Quakerism. He, he identified as a Quaker, he still identifies, I believe, as a Quaker. He's, he's still alive, uh, um, very uh, elderly, but um, I've met him a few times, but still very sharp. And he is, um, he and his wife still identify as Quakers. They've in their early days of their marriage, they lived in, a, I guess, a commune would be, for lack of a better term, a Quaker commune. They called it an intentional community because they were trying to see if people could cooperate together, sort of in a cooperative uh, community, and to try and, and get away from the cutthroat sort of capitalist mainstream that they had an issue with. And, uh, you know, they were part of a couple different communes. They got married in a Quaker meeting. And they were also absolute pacifists. So throughout their whole life, they were anti-war activists and thought that was, um, you know, central to any religious belief that you would be anti-violence and anti-war. So he gets involved in the new left movement from the civil rights movement that goes, you know, from one to the other. So many common characters um, and activists in both of them. And he was known as uh, a little bit old. He was a little bit older than a lot of the college students. He was more of the professor age at the time in the 1960s during the Vietnam War. Um, But people started to realize he wasn't just about anti-war and the anti-Vietnam War. Um, He had this deeper um, kind of socialist belief system that he was writing about. And um, I do have a quote from his first book at the very end of his first book, which was a history. It was a history of... um, 
democratic communities during the Revolutionary War times Mm -hmm. uh, in the U.S. And he said that we have to have faith that men can live together in a radically different way um, to start these sort of underground congregations that meant like alternative communities uh, so that it can burst forth as a model for the kingdom of God on earth. And so he uses that phrase, kingdom of God on earth. And when I read that, I, you know, because that, because that phrase is so used amongst uh, spiritual, the people I eventually used in the book and social gospelers, I thought, man, he, I can't believe he just used that term, yeah. uh, you know, this, this radical and what are some very secular um, protest movements. And as I started to read more about him and interview him personally, uh, it was very clear that he had a very strong sense of spirituality and a force of good in the universe that you know one would call God. What was that like interviewing him? Great. I, the first time I met him, I drove out to Ohio. He lives near uh, Youngstown, Ohio, and I went to their home. Very, very sparse. I mean, they are not materialistic or into money whatsoever. So he really, he he's, he is an example of someone who absolutely lives his beliefs and from the, from the beginning to the end of his life, never gave up on uh, or deviated from his belief system and in, in helping people. He became a labor rights lawyer after he was kind of blacklisted from academia um, to help industrial workers in the Youngstown area. That's how he ended up moving there. Uh, and then he got into liberation theology. You know, if people know about how that became uh, and still is a major theological movement in mostly Latin America, but other uh, developing countries as well. And he was he traveled to Guatemala, for example, in Nicaragua, to um, learn more about that and to get involved in the activism with liberation theology. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I, I made your book help me make more sense of Lynn. You know, I I. Back, I, I said 68 HA, it was actually the 69 American Historical Association meeting, just a quick correction there. But but he was always arguing against the more traditional historians uh, using this, what I think at one point he called it guerrilla history, where you're you're embedded, right, with, with your subjects if you're writing social history. I think he used the phrase accompaniment, which I think you yeah. used a couple of times in the book. You know, knowing the spiritual angle on that, you know, you kind of walk alongside your subjects. I still think it's hard to do history that way in a kind of, you know, mm-hmm. but he was very much a kind of activist historian. And the activism was much more important than the rules of the profession that have been around since Von Ranke or, you know, whoever. Yeah. Just a little shout out to you. He uh, blurbs your book, calls it a courageous book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that's that's a great quote, and and uh, it's a, it's a long blurb. You'll have to get the book and read the and read the rest of it. But a fascinating figure, much more. If I remember, like his compatriot, I always associated in my mind Lind and Zinn, right? Howard Zinn. Zinn did not oh, yeah. seem to have any kind of spiritual, um, from what I can tell. I mean, it was just unless I missed it or there was some kind of, but it wasn't. You know, he didn't use spiritual language as much as as Lind or maybe even like Jesse Lemish, who was also yeah. an activist at that time, who I think was Jewish. But yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm forgetting now um, if I picked up on a lot of language from Zen on those terms. Definitely yeah. 
definitely more prominent from Staunton Land, but they were very close friends and colleagues at Spellman, for example. Uh, Sorry, not Spellman. Um, was it Spellman? <laughs> it was in Atlanta, uh, right? It was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where they taught together, and you know, a lot of people might be familiar with Howard Zinn's "A People's History right. of the United States," and the whole idea there was that why just talk about great men at the top, like the elites? Yeah. Why not actually show uh, the social impact of history on regular right. people? Yeah. Right. So just wrapping up here, again, you there's so much more in this book. I encourage you to go out and get a copy of it and read it if you're interested in this kind of stuff. And I hope you are. Uh, so many little bios I've already you know, failed to mention. We failed to discuss just because we don't have time. But you kind of end with uh, someone maybe a lot of our readers have heard of or at least seen somewhere, uh, Cornell West. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, he's the public intellectual academic. I don't know if he'd call himself a theologian or a moral philosopher of some type, you know, and he tends to be. I mean, you also talk about Reverend William Barber and the Poor People's Campaign. Some of you are familiar with that. Some of the listeners. But let's end on West. How does he fit into this narrative of spiritual socialism? West was pretty easy to for me to make a case for to include in this book. If you pick up any any writing of Cornell West, it becomes immediately obvious that he's talking about radical change, but with Christian the, theology, Christian belief system. Uh, again, from a very early age, you know, he was growing up in Sacramento and wanted to be involved in radical activism, but had issues with the Black Panthers. They're, you know, they're. Uh, advocacy of some violence, and he would actually confront them about uh, this, or the Nation of Islam, he would confront them about their embrace of violence, and try to convince them that, you know, there was a more spiritual component to this, and that it was compatible with Christianity. So Cornell West, Christian from from his youth till today, uh, and, and yeah, philosopher, historian, uh, theologian. He was at Union for a while, mm-hmm. um, Harvard, Princeton, <laughs> yeah. um, and then a public intellectual in more recent time. But uh, it, it pick up any writings of him, an essay, a book, uh, one of his first books coming kind of for full circle to the beginning of our conversation. One of West's first books was The Ethical the Ethical Elements of Marxism, I think was the title or something like that, The, Ethic, the Ethical View of Marxism. And he was he was going through this question of you know how how helpful is Marxism for a Christian activism for Christian activists uh, is it still relevant was was there any ethical essence to it or is it by its very nature corruptible into these you know dictatorships that become violent and oppressive and so you know if you, if you have questions about the ethical elements of Marxism that would be a, a good place yeah. to to start because uh, he really unpacks that and gives it gives it some some justice because Marx meant well <laughs> it was just yeah. that uh, it got it got corrupted so easily there is a kind of uh, uh, African American mm-hmm. kind of spiritual socialism that you trace through the book through you know King but also Paulie Murray you know gets a lot of coverage in your book um, West. Uh, to what extent have these, uh, you know, more recent kind of African-American thinkers like West been attracted to socialism and, and how is that connected with kind of their, their 
pursuit of civil rights or racial justice and those kinds of things? Yeah, so always um, throughout the book, all the characters or figures in the book uh, grapple with racism, and it's definitely part of their program to confront racism whenever they see it. You know, share what Eddie did, Staunton Lynn definitely did. Uh, so that is true of, of all the figures in this book, but someone like Cornell West, who was a theory, who wrote theory on race and race matters, um, it was more central to their thought and to their agenda for activism. But it basically boils down to the belief that God doesn't want anyone to cause suffering to another person and that racism is a mechanism by which you cause suffering to other people. Um, And that it can be an interpersonal racism or it can be a structural structural or economic racism where uh, you contribute to people's suffering through policy or, you know, institutions. They thought, you know, you, you can't, have progress in society towards the kingdom of God if you're going to persist in racism. They understood this. Or they often understood this through the realm of their uh, their kind of spiritual socialism, as you call it. They were not sort of separate kind no. of things. I mean, this this was an uplifting of all of society in some ways, rather than a kind of uh, you know maybe kind of an identity politics or something yeah. that you you see today. Absolutely. And Barber, William Barber, if you read his writings about, uh, you said the people that he calls it the third reconstruction as well. And he's trying to get past this identity politics stumbling block for a lot of liberal progressive um, Mm -hmm. activism where people get so siloed into their single issues. And he's trying to, you know, bring everyone together into a common cause and, you know, uh, transcend those single issues to talk about values and yeah. Christian values in particular. Yeah. And you make that point towards the end of the book, I think in the conclusion with Barber, and that seems to have always been a kind of socialist. You know, I was, I was talking to, you know, one of these hardcore Trotskyists, you know, recently, you know, one of these guys who was criticizing the 1619 project and whatever you, whatever you want to think about that critique, you heard this, rejection of identity politics because class i guess the identity politics for for him was class yeah Yeah, it was just a different kind of identity politics but he you know he believed that uh black lives matter and this kind of identity anti-racism was just dividing right the the working classes you know around the world very hardcore kind of old school secular marxists but interesting nonetheless the book is Spiritual Socialists, Religion in the American Left. Vanessa Cook is the author. Vanessa, thanks for taking some time uh, to talk about the book. And hopefully, the book came out in 2019, but hopefully this podcast, right, will get it back on people's radar screen, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, it was published right before the pandemic. So a lot yeah. of the book fairs were shut down and a lot of the promotional yep efforts were uh, limited because of the lockdown, but that crossed my mind, you know, I mean, I think that's why I just came across the book about a year ago or nine months ago or so. I I just must've missed it during the pandemic. So uh, congratulations, belated congratulations (laughs) on the book.
I don't know about you, but I thoroughly enjoyed this interview and I thoroughly enjoyed this book. Whatever your political persuasion happens to be, whatever your faith tradition, if you have one, happens to be, we have to come to grips with some of the voices that Vanessa Cook writes about in Spiritual Socialists. So many of these people were trying to legitimately follow the teachings of Jesus and apply those teachings into everyday life and address questions of you know, moral and social injustice within society from the perspective of faith. I think it's really important to realize what Vanessa said uh, at the beginning, that we've turned socialism into such a boogeyman today, especially for those on the right or even liberals, right? That it's associated with Marxism or cultural Marxism or some kind of evil, quote unquote, satanic kind of agenda. But I think if you read Cook's research here, I think you'll come away, if you read it honestly, you'll come away with a, a very different view of, of socialism. Now, again, there'll be a lot of debates uh, you know, about whether or not the kind of utopian vision of some of these socialists is actually doable. Um, you know, I tend to often lean a little bit more towards the Niebuhr side of things, the sort of realist side of things. You know, that there's we live in a tragic and broken world, but yet we must work, continue to work for progress and change and so forth, knowing that we're never going to achieve it on this side of eternity. Say, I think people like Staunton Lind and Martin Luther King Jr. and Paulie Murray and Henry Wallace, the chapter on Wallace is fascinating. Dorothy Day, they are asking the right questions. And, and I think many people of faith and non-people, people who don't have faith, can learn something from their approach to justice and equality and human rights and these kinds of things. So I said this to Vanessa during the interview. I ran across her work when I was reading Bread and Wine by Ignazio Salone. And since I've read most of his fiction. I read, I, I just really binged on his fiction this past summer. And I, I came across her piece in Dissent, which is a, a left progressive magazine. I think that piece in Dissent really captures the, the spirit of Salone and then was really pleased to learn when I read Spiritual Socialists, her book, that Salone had a profound influence on some of these uh, some of these these characters like Dorothy Day and Staunton Lynn and others. So uh, check it out. Spiritual Socialists, Religion and the American Left, published in 2019 with Penn Press. I think this book got lost a little bit in the COVID-19 pandemic. There are a lot of book fairs and speaking opportunities, I think, that she could have had that she didn't because of COVID. And uh, for whatever reason, this book did not get the kind of attention that it deserved. I want to try to lift that book up now and, and give it some of that attention that it definitely uh, deserves in this kind of larger field of American religious history and uh, American Christianity. So I uh, hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks again to Vanessa Cook for taking some time out. We're actually recording this in the evening, which is unusual for us. So I appreciate her taking some time on a weekday evening to talk to us. Thanks again for listening. And as always, may your way of improvement be home. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is recorded via Zoom. Original music is by Overholt. 
co-founder of the podcast, who is now off doing bigger and better things, is Drew Durley Hermelin. Our producer is Casey Lehman. She is out of Nashville. And I, John Fia, am your host. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com.